welcome to Media Democracy. It's a podcast about media, politics, and the politics of the media. I'm Tom Mills, and I'm joined, as ever, by Dan Hines. Hello, Dan. Hello. We are delighted to be joined this week by Hussein Kasvani, who is a fellow podcaster, amongst other things, um, <laughs> who appears on the Trash Future podcast, which will uh, be familiar to many listeners, and is also a journalist. Um, Hussein, do you want to introduce yourself to listeners, tell, tell them where they can find you in your writing? Sure. Hi. Um, so my actual real serious journalism, so to speak, is at Mel Magazine. It's a men's interest publication based out in Los Angeles, California, although I'm based in London and I am a UK and Europe editor. So you can find my work at melmagazine.com forward slash Hussein dash Kezvani. Um, but all, you know, just go on Twitter and you'll find all my stuff. So, yeah. Hussein's very good on Twitter. He's kind of a Twitter personality and, uh, and the podcaster. Yeah. So yeah, we we should um, talk about that. We should talk about, about that a little bit about like how Twitter personalities like are not necessarily have have probably caused more damage to like this industry <laughs> than like um than most other things. Yeah, um, well we we jumped the the gun a bit there, but just to say to everyone what <laughs> we're going to be talking about today is actually Twitter and journalists like Hussein on Twitter. So um. That was quite a smooth introduction that I then made less smooth by, <laughs> by interrupting. <laughs> but, um, we're all on Twitter here. Um, and I think when we first did this show, um, Dan and I religiously mentioned our Twitter handles. And, you know, for God's sake, if you're not following us by now, I don't really know why you're listening. But I'm at T.A. Mills uh, on Twitter. Or actually, maybe I'm at T.A. underscore Mills on Twitter. Um, as you probably know from previous shows, um, I'm I'm relatively... I try to be sort of relatively professional on Twitter, but then get quite grumpy quite easily. And um, actually, if people aren't remember from previous show that I had a little run in with David Aronovich, which ended up me being in his column as a result of making fun of him on Twitter. And Hussein actually stuck his oar in at that at one stage. <laughs> Um, with with, with an <laughs> in-joke that I originally didn't understand and only later figured out what was going on because it was based on something that happened on the internet and then was mentioned <laughs> by someone. <laughs> Do you, you know what I'm talking about, Hussein? Yeah, yeah. It was like, it was, um, oh, well, it was so, it was just like the dumbest thing that I could think of. It was about how, it was something to do with like the Plymouth Herald comment section. Um, I can't remember what the exact tweet was because I've, I've set, and we can talk about this as well. I've set my Twitter so it deletes my tweets every two weeks. Uh, oh, really? uh, yeah, and you know, there's a there's a really important reason for that, and like it's kind of actually part of this whole conversation. Um, but it was something to do with like uh, oh, I can't. It was something to do with the Plymouth Herald comment section, and David Aranovich got really mad because he didn't understand the reference. So he yeah. was like, "Do you think that's appropriate?" And then everyone else was just like, "Yeah, like it's a it's like the okay. it's like it's like a so joke." The reason was was it, it sounded like you were calling his wife a prostitute because. Right. <laughs> No, because somebody else, I, I don't, I can't even remember what the original reference was now. But basically, yeah. um, somebody had claimed something about no, somebody, I think it was a Tory, said that someone had said something and called his wife a prostitute on the yeah. Herald comments board or something, and no one could find the original comment. But this was going around the internet at one stage. So then, um, I think you asked me whether I made the accusation about David Aronovich's wife. I don't even know if he's married. Um, on the Plymouth Herald uh, conference board or something. Yeah. Um, anyway, let's start. Let's start the Twitter conversation for real. How long have we all been on Twitter for? Does anyone know? I, I've um, been on since 2012. It I, says on my profile. Yeah. No, I th- I can't remember. It was 2000. Uh, 
It might be like 2009 or something. Jeez, you're, you're, you've been on ages, Dan. I, I I, so. I'm on July 2013. I, I tried not to join for ages. I wasn't even on Facebook when at the time that I joined Twitter, actually. I, basically, I remember I was having a conversation with a friend and they said, oh, you're writing a book. You've got to get on Twitter. It's a really good promotional tool. <laughs> In my perfect innocence, for years, I was plugging away thinking, if I can just get, like, if I, if I can tweet this out, maybe people will buy my book. The thing yeah. is, Dan, I... I I don't often say nice things about you, but your tweets are actually really good. Like, well, that's, um, that's they're better. Than, your tweets are better than the website. <laughs> I do spend my time tweeting thinking, in, in the old days, this would have been a fucking blog post. And it's just what now? Yeah. A few characters. Anyway, listen, we're going to fuck up the brand if you're nice to me. So, um... You're saying how you how so did you get on did you move on to Twitter because you were a working journalist or was it so I, so I was I was a stu- I was a student but I had just gotten into student journalism in 2012 and okay. 2012 was like a really pivotal year for like my generation of journalists I'll tell you why because it's like really cringeworthy now but it's really interesting to look back back to which sure. was in, in 2012 there was a TV show that was on HBO called The Newsroom right mm-hmm. uh, and I don't know if, I don't know if you guys have talked about it before but like for someone who had just like decided that oh I want to see if I can become a journalist um and that was like your first point of reference like it was absolutely bizarre and like Twitter was a very big part of that show in the sense that like obviously it was supposed to be opining it was supposed to be this kind of weird uh oh shit with Aaron Sorkin like you know style opining about like modern you know yeah. yeah yeah so it's like modern news and like there was this kind of big thing about, oh yeah, like Twitter's gonna like change what news is. And like, there was, you know, an Indian guy who was like the Twitter person. I was like, hey, I'm, a, I'm an Indian guy who does news. So maybe I should be the Twitter person. This was your game plan. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I was like, okay, if I become the Twitter person, then I can work in a TV newsroom and I can have all those fun experiences that Aaron Sorkin's talking about. <laughs> um, so yeah. <laughs> I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing at Aaron Sorkin. Right, right. Um, right. Yeah, that it was, was a thing of joy. That that some yeah. yeah, it was quite ex- quite extraordinary. It was so hey, do you know what we should do? We should do a re- review show of that show, like because yeah. a lot of podcasts do that. You know, go back and revisit a film or like a TV show. We can I tie that into the show. Most podcasts do that. <laughs> That's what um, yeah, but I don't think we've done that. There's some like really fu- there's some really funny scenes that like are really unintentionally funny in that show and there's one scene because I, I re-watched a couple of episodes um a few weeks ago just because I had found them on like a hard, external hard disk that I was transferring files from um and there's like this one scene in the newsroom where like they're having this big argument because the Indian guy who's going on Twitter he's just like oh I want to do this like you know story about Bigfoot and how Bigfoot's real and they have this like weird kind of Sorkin style argument about like what's the truth and what isn't and then there's this moment where like oh uh a congresswoman gets shot and then the whole scene changes and like cold plays like uh oh shit what's that cold play song that really kind of weird sentimental one that they play at glastonbury all the time starts playing in the background and like he shuts down his twitter account with like bigfoot it's like it's genuinely one of the funniest things that like i've seen and it was like completely unintentionally so um it's yeah i don't know it's it's great like the newsroom is great for like all the wrong reasons <laughs> does, there, does he have a sense of humor talking I, I get the sense he doesn't um yeah. i mean i never saw, i never saw the west wing so the only talking thing that i've ever oh, seen oh it's such is, a bad show i mean this is the thing like 
I, I always disagree with a lot of people about this because I know a yeah. lot of people are really into politics, but I absolutely hate the West Wing. Like, right. I just find it intolerable, but it's got this horrible yeah. sort of, like, it's the smuggest program, but also yeah. you need to really like American politics, and I just yeah. find it dull. Like, I, I mean, I don't like politics anyway, but, like, American politics I just find intolerable. But also it's got this sort of horrible sort of glossy, you know, I it, it, pretend, it pretends, has this sort of, like performative cynicism about it but basically it's just unbelievably starry-eyed and um idealistic so but that's what you get isn't it with um it's the same with the, it's the same with the newsroom as well it's like it's incredibly like smug it's incredibly like everyone that you know they you know they uh, so the way that Sorkin characterizes this team of journalists is like it's almost as if you know the same way that some people like valorize like you know members of the military or you know so you know they, they, they he, he basically makes the news people like service people right yeah. like you know they, you, you your, your respect for them should come because of the basis of what they do and what their occupation is um they're all kind of on the ner- on the verge of a sort of traumatic breakdown because they care about the news so much hmm. It's like they sweat the news. Yeah, yeah. Like even, even. I, 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 I'm sorry about. I'm sorry. I'm hijacking your podcast and making it into like a Sorkin, a Sorkin review podcast. No, um, as, as we said, loose format. Well, I just, I, I just, I just remembered that like there's another scene in the newsroom where like one, the two of the characters who are in a relationship are in like you know they're they're at home and they're in bed and like they suddenly just start talking about the news like they're in the office and it's just like what I don't I don't understand like this this. I, I've never, this is just weird, right? But then when I was looking back at like 2012 me who had a Blogspot account and had a Twitter account, I was like, oh yeah, I want to like have a girlfriend who I can talk to news, talk about the news with in bed. And like, because that's a very normal thing that, you know, nerdy student media people like think about, right? <laughs> um, so it's, yeah, it's very interesting to kind of look back on that now, especially like in the wake of not only me having worked in multiple newsrooms and seeing what they've all been like, but also just like the current moment that we're in, in regards to like how we consume media and the people who make that. So what, so we, Twitter specifically, I guess we want to talk about, like what, what particular role did you think that like Twitter was playing in this kind of um, unfolding sure. universe for you? So I think that when I got Twitter, the practical reason was that I had a Blogspot account that like not a lot of people were reading because I, you know, it was just like a couple of university friends and my blog was really just like a comments blog. Um, yeah. At the time, like I, Owen Jones, uh, our friend Owen Jones, like he was like, you know, just coming up in the scene and like there was this kind of story around him. But oh yeah, Owen Jones just had a Blogspot account and he just wrote loads for Blogspot and then someone discovered him. So that was the way that you should do things. So that's one of the reasons why I set up a Blogspot. And I was that's just not actually like, true though, is it? Um, I don't know what the real story is, but I also know that like if it's anything like my experience, like that wasn't the case. Like no one read my blogspot despite how much work I put into it. Right, right. <laughs> um, so I mean, this is a useful sidebar on on like it, like internet sort of celebrity and and the, the way in which you move from obscurity to <laughs> relative um, visibility. Because Owen, yeah. Owen Jones worked for John McDonnell in Parliament before he. Yeah moved into journalism and would have been very well connected with yeah. the Labour movement and with the Labour Party. Right, right, right. And um yeah, and that would have been that would have been the core of a of a yeah. of an audience on the left of the Labour Party that yeah. he and was also, and- were kind of articulating. So but as you say, these the apparent sort of um uh effortlessness or the apparent sort of spontaneity of that move into visibility i think yeah. is 
part of this it's part of this neoliberal kind of bait and switch about how you can succeed through you know bootstrapping your your own efforts and so on You're right right uh, absolutely yeah absolutely that pure quality of what you do if what you do if, you know there's always room at the top if you if you're good enough uh, you'll break through and the reality is actually there's a there's a sort of calculus about how good your stuff is how how well it connects with um with with what what your existing or, or your potential network need or want yeah and it's yeah it's a much it's a much more grubby and, and kind of earth the thing i would say is that from the perspective of the sort of establishment players like there was a really weird time i don't know when um say this was sort of something that you you were aware of um around that time but there, there was definitely an effort by the establishment players to sort of um pick up on like um and i guess this probably would have been a bit earlier I was reminded of this today because there was one period much, much later. I, I ran a website called New Left Project around this time. And The Guardian, for a period, sort of buddied up with New Left Project and started taking some of our articles. And you notice this did end up giving you these huge audiences. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, they were sort of using us as a sort of blog that they were bring, bringing onto their platform. But do you remember, like, uh, Liberal Conspiracy and Sunny Hundle? Yes, yeah. yeah. So Sonny Hundle was somebody who, I mean, to my mind, didn't really have good at sort of political analysis or, or but he, he didn't seem to have like extraordinary gifts compared to some of his um, blogging peers. But he managed to get the sort of a bit of a go at the Guardian. I guess that would have been quite a while before your time, actually, where he managed um, to break through online to. No. No, because I, 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 I pitched I pitched Sonny a couple of times when I was a student. Uh, funnily enough, I pitched him at a liberal conspiracy. I never managed to get anything in because I didn't quite have the pitch that he wanted. But mm. I think it was also like it was also a time when there were lots of blogs around. So mm. I think like Laurie Penny had Penny Red, I think it was called. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. And that got her into New Statesman, didn't it? Right, right. And like obviously Sonny Hundle had liberal conspiracy. There were a couple of others that were like labor aligned. Um and also at the time, like politics was very different, right? So like, mm. um, you know, to be like a left-wing journalist, like then wasn't really like now, like the takes that at least I remember reading were pretty like glib. They were pretty like Millibandy. I don't know yeah, if that's you... right. I mean, like, I think it's very, uh, yeah. Yeah, I know completely. I mean, if you think like the, the people who sort of broke into amazing, Owen Jones was slightly unusual in that he was very much a socialist. Mm. Um, Ellie Mayo Hagen, who was a similar, uh, she was, I don't think she was a blogger, but she managed to get, you know, a good, a good sort of gig in the mainstream. Yeah. It's now very much on the left, but then was much more of, of the left at that time around the sort of Sonny Hundle, like you say, Millibandite sort yeah. of. Um, I mean, but the thing is, of course, in the period of Blairism, that put you relatively firmly on the left in a way which, you know, it just hasn't since really. So, I, I mean, I think politically it was probably quite a different sort of moment yeah. um so, so sorry i mean i sort of interrupted your what, what you were saying really but you were saying about how there was a, a feeling at that stage that you could build up a an online presence which would then form a sort of route into um journalism yeah and i think it was it was like it was powerful for people like me because like my parents i don't come from like a family of like journalists or like politics people like my parents ran like a small corner store um in south london and like my real interactions with like the media 
up until like I went to university was delivering papers and like, you know, putting Sunday papers together and stuff like that. Um, So so, like for me, it was like, oh, it would be if like these guys have done it. And like the mythology says is that like these, you know, they came from obscurity and all they did was write. And then, um, you know, and then again, when we go back to Twitter, like what Twitter was really useful for was making connections with alumni. So like York, I went to York University and York has a reputation for churning out kind of, you know, people who make it to uh, make it to like media because there's so much student media that you end up with a generate, you end up with like people who feel like they're entitled to, um, uh, they're entitled to like places on magazines and newspapers and stuff. So I ended up using Twitter for some of that to connect with like, you know, alumni who were working at uh, the Telegraph and the Mail and like just, you know, do, do you know what I mean? And like, my first yeah. time so for me it was like a very it was a professional tool it was a way for me to try get my work out there but I was really only using it for that like and I think at the time everyone thought Twitter was going to be like that there's there's a really there's another really interesting part in a documentary called page one which is a documentary about the New York Times and I think there is a scene with like Brian Stelter who is now a CNN um host but back then he was the New York Times media reporter and there's this really interesting moment where he talks about like the power of Twitter and how like Twitter is going to be the thing that, you know, em- you know, empowers people and you know facilitates revolutions. And this is also around about the time of like the Arab Spring, you know, um, you know, the Arab Spring was like in yeah. 2011. And like, even though the revolutions were sort of going downhill, like it wasn't, there were still people who were saying that, oh, like because of Twitter and social media and citizen journalists, like this is going to be the tool that powers us. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think all no, of that, there was a lot yeah. of that around. All of that, um, all of that in confluence, I think, kind of gave a generation of journalists who once kind of believed that they wouldn't make it onto student news, wouldn't make it onto newspapers unless they knew people. That was kind of the impetus to be like, oh, like maybe we can do it. Um, but even then, like you know, as you've kind of alluded to, and I'm sure we'll talk about later, like when you unpack that, like there are a lot of problems that come with it, and that's really only visible now. Mm-hmm. did you imagine yourself as a newspaper journalist um yes I really wanted to work at the Guardian like that was my dream job to work at the Guardian and I wanted to be working on the news desk yeah <laughs> so you've had some experiences of of, of newsrooms like how, how do they sort of live up to that early sort of I mean did, did how long did that sort of very romanticized picture um or relatively romanticized picture of how the news media works yeah. last you and at what at what point because it sounds to me like you've fallen out of love with the idea of that or at least you've encountered the reality of it yeah how long did that yeah. sort of how long um, did that romance take to die off right so that that the kind of like sorkin style newsroom romance thing that died really quickly so i did in my in my in my spring holiday of my final year of university, I got an internship, an unpaid internship at The Guardian, uh, working on the news desk. And like I was super excited about it because it was like, you know, I've worked so hard to get to this point. Like, you know, yeah. I was I was that guy who just like, like, you know, I put it on Facebook. I like didn't shut up about it. I like student parties and stuff like that. And then when I got there, um, you know, I had a suit, I had a tie, I like bought a new bag like it was you know, I thought this was really going to be my moment. And I spent that like week and a half just sitting there doing nothing um, because like it was very evident that like the news journalists that I was working with like just didn't want to work for an intern. Um, they didn't want someone who like was inexperienced with news. So like a lot of the time what I was doing was emailing people asking 
like, do you have any jobs for me to do? Do you have any jobs for me to do? And there's like, there's like nothing. I did like a couple of, um, what did I do? I did like a couple of like copyrights. So one of the things that really like made me lose my um, rose tinted glasses when it came to it was when I saw the Guardian had a system back then, which was kind of just like a newswire. And I had seen that like there was a section of news journalists that I had been embedded with or I had been like put with whose job was literally just to take stuff from the wire and turn it into copy. Yeah. Um, so it was literally just like, take these lines, turn it into like 400, 500 words, do it again, do it again, do it again, do it again. Um, so like, that's when I realized, that, oh, like this is not how I expected. And like the people who are working here, they're just sitting at their desks all day. They're not really going out and doing anything. Um, you know, you have to like, it was also the first time that I had seen that there is like power dynamics in the newsroom as well. So mm-hmm. like you would have like features directors who would like, either ignore your emails when you sent like sent them like pitch ideas which is like what you're told to do so when you know people like when you get in when you get your foot inside the door so to speak like you should just be pitching people and you should just be pitching ideas and like eventually something will come through and then yeah. what had happened was i had pitched an idea to a features editor um and i can't remember what that idea was but like it was something that i'd been thinking about for a long time and they said it was something like oh this isn't one for us but you know whatever so i kind of brushed it off and then the next day in the guardian conference room and the thing is in the conference rooms like anyone can go attend a conference meeting like it's not like an exclusive thing um one of the features writers working on g2 pitched that story and it got accepted and i was just like what the fuck um like and that's kind of that's a very standard thing that happens in news offices right it's like you know they will take people who are on their staff or people who they know very well seriously but if you're like a newcomer then like that's not going to happen and especially if like you're very visibly an intern um so that's when I sort of realized oh like the way that this works is that you have to be an insider like you have to know people you have to like have those relationships and that's not going to come from doing internship after internship Mm. um so that was like my first very harsh thing and then like the rest of my career like I think you know that stuff is kind of popped up every so often but I've reached a stage now where like, you know, I'm, I'm an editor now, which is like something I never really expected, but I think I have a much more realistic view about how like the industry works. And if someone was to ask for advice about like how to, you know, how to get into it, um, like I would not kind of tell them to do what I did. Mm. That makes sense. Sorry. I went on a bit. No, no, that was really interesting. I mean, I think, you know, it's, people have sort of got much more of an awareness now of the role that, um, you know, unpaid internships play, giving certain people a foot in the door. But what they often miss is like the, the sort of the, the gradations of privilege in like in London society is so ridiculous. Right, right, right. So yeah. you know what I mean? So like you can you can get there and you will have, have opportunities that like other people from like different backgrounds, say you hadn't gone to university or whatever, yeah, yeah. would never dream of. But right. still, you can get there and just be like, all oh, right, I'm bottom of the pecking order. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is, you know, you can get your foot in the door and it can mean fuck all. Because like, right, right. the people could still not give a shit what, what you think. Um, yeah. So, you know, it, it, I think it's one of those things about how, I mean, and I don't think this is particular to the media, actually. I mean, right. I think that, you know, it, it will work in other institutions. But I think one of the things that the media places like the Guardian do I think is that they 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 retain that certain sort of English class formality that used to operate in the civil service which now I mean probably I'm sure you know I'm not being naive about the civil service but like 
it operates kind of in parallel to quite a quite rigid sort of emission structure and um, you know promotion criteria and these kinds of things which right. I just don't think has ever touched like the media and and probably other a lot of other institutions you know like uh, the corporate world as well as the same you know it's just like it, it's not creativity that gets you ahead it's being able to navigate um, yeah office politics essentially yeah um, but that's interesting though you know what you should have done is actually gone in and been like I'm actually here to do an ethnography and I'm going to write it up and then I'm going to try <laughs> and honestly I'm half joking and that would have been brilliant if you had just been like sat in there take, taking field notes well I mean I wish I, I wish what I wish what I had done is like I, I keep diaries now but like back then I didn't and I just wish what I'd like kept diaries back then because there was so much kind of small and really weird stuff that like I could have made notes of and it would just like you know, it would, the, the inner like tellings of like how a newsroom actually works is something that still I think needs a really good book or like a really good television program or something like that. Um, yeah, I really, I mean, there, there, there's yeah. some really good, there's some really good, uh, but not that many academic ethnographic sort of studies. And there, there was one actually. So when I was doing my PhD, you know, where I had basically had to read everything that was ever written on the BBC. There was a guy there who worked at the BBC and he was also a sociologist and he sort of combined his role there. So he just did a period where he's like, right, I'm just going to do a sort of ethnography of right. the editorial process. And it was a really good paper and it was very highly cited because there wasn't a lot of um, literature at that stage on on the sort of ethnography of the newsroom. And the, the, a lot of it developed. But, you know, it, it, I think. The the thing is, if you are a journalist, you'd be like, well, this isn't interesting. Well, it's either annoying or you think, well, you know, this is common sense. This is how this institution works. But I mean, I, I think to outsiders, it is. I mean, to me, it's interesting. Obviously, I mean, I wouldn't say that I'm a media sociologist, but um, I also think that the media is one of those institutions that like uh, fiction seems to have real difficulty representing the police is the same. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of information as to what's actually going on in these institutions it just doesn't seem to actually find its way to representations right right um which is why i think it you know it would i agree it would be really interesting it'd be really interesting to do that i feel like we've uh diverged from our from our topic which no, i think this is quite a good way in, in into the subject somewhere because i think the media does retain um a great deal of mystique i think and, it, and the people who work in it in their sort of public facing moments, they want to maintain that mystique, that sense that they have a, um, that their trade is truth, right? Their, their trade is, they're, they're in the business of news um, and so they're doing something that's sort of slightly mysterious, um, perhaps even slightly underhand. They're very cunning people um, and they want to maintain that impression, as you say, Hussein, even when a lot of them spend a lot of their time producing copy from a wire. And when that when that slightly crafty guild culture of journalism moves into an online space like Twitter, yeah, all kinds of shenanigans <laughs> with hilarious consequences. <laughs> you wouldn't believe what happened when this fat hack turned up on Twitter. Um, so the so there's a there's a there's a bunch of sort of um, there's a number of groups of journalists, a number of journalistic styles that are very sort of lively and present on my timeline in Twitter. Mm. Um, and um, and I think that in different ways they do illustrate this this sort of mismatch between the old cult of the newsroom and this and this reality of sort of panoptical 
um, mutual surveillance that happens on Twitter. And the first group that I'd want to talk to sort of touch on is the is the sort of the strange hybrid form that is the the Times journalist on Twitter. Yeah. The Times operates behind a paywall on the one hand, um, but they're all they're always jumping over the paywall paywall to sort of engage with with the the non-paying mobs. Right. And there's, right. there's an interesting question is like like I think they they feel a bit sort of bereft um in that none of their articles can ever go viral um, <laughs> it's so true <laughs> the thing is you know what people do though is that they they photo you know they, they just screenshot the most offensive parts and then post it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh i've written today brands get in trouble with the twitter hordes and so there's this, yeah. So there is that, as, as I said, there's a mismatch between a uh, an attempt to sort of monetize and maintain um, uh, a kind of uh, a container around the journalism, yeah. And then personalities on online who it might be fair to say perhaps even overcompensate um, when they do go online. And I'm thinking number of things thinking of a number of characters, um, uh, long-standing. Um, figure of fascination for the show um david ronovich um <laughs> but also um someone like giles corran um, uh Rifk, is it hugo rifkind what are corans doing when they when they go on twitter i mean they're drumming up trade but what <sighs> what else are they up to because it, it often seems to be a very high risk strategy for them i also don't think they really it's there's really like a conscious like efforts to do i don't know because i i don't know like obviously all the kind of mishaps um all the kind of um issues that come with like criticizing papers tend to root in columnists so like one thing that one thing that like to bear in mind is that like the times still kind of positions itself as being the paper of record so it's reporters by all means kind of have to be very straight laced they can't you don't really see a lot of like times reporters for example like airing their opinions in public um, they don't kind of cause like, you know, beef or trouble or anything. There's no real like personalities who you can say, oh, this so-and-so is a person, a reporter at the Times in the same way as in like the same way as like, you know, some of my former colleagues at BuzzFeed, like people knew who they were and their personalities, despite them being reporters at BuzzFeed News or like, you know, at The Guardian and stuff like that. So, sure. so one thing, one thing that I was told by someone when I said that columnists were pointless a few years ago um and that like there's no value that columnists really add to news reporting one of them said that no columnists are the people who kind of add currency to a paper because most people buy newspapers because of familiar names so like a lot of the times someone will buy the times because like god forbid like they want to read david aranovich or they want to read melanie phillips or something like that um at least like as someone who used to sell papers at my at my, at my parents store like people used to buy that for the same reasons right so you know we have to order well, copies melanie of the sunday phillips. times um yes not joking so we used to we used to order one copy of the sunday times because someone always wanted to read the melanie phillips articles there was someone who wanted the sunday times because they wanted to read another columnist whose name i can't remember um you know so we used to have like these big we used to have these big piles of the sun just because they were the cheapest ones to sell um yeah. and the daily mail like for similar reasons but like for the very kind of like for the broadsheet papers like they would come specifically for these columnists. So there is a certain like, so it feels as if like these news brands kind of rely on columnists to kind of shift papers. Um, but then you have this thing called Twitter, right? So like the whole purpose of columnists is that they air opinions and like the, the romanticized idea of what a columnist is, is that they synthesize 
all the news that has happened, they deeply think about what's going on and they'll try to translate that in a way that you can understand in a short amount of time. Um, obviously, I don't feel that's the case. A lot of columnists kind of just like take their opinions that could be made into 140 characters or 280 and they try to turn it into like a 300, 400 word article. Um, and, you know, what I'm what I'm kind of seeing is that lots of these columnists are in a bit of a crisis because what they find is that, oh, Twitter is this place where so many people exist on and they all have opinions and their opinions like on this, on this platform are platform just as much as mine. You know, you know, so like whereas a long time ago I might have had like paper space where I could express my view yeah. and all that stuff. Now, like I have the same amount of characters as everyone else. And that means that like me, Mr. Serious Columnist, who, you know, loves to talk about how, you know, left wing socialists are the same as fascists. Yeah. Like, you know, um, now I have to deal with a daily experience of being owned by teenagers or like being owned by like leftists with anime avatars, right? Um, which is sort of like what like has happened to people like Aranovich and I mean, there's a few others and they kind of, you know what they do? They end up, what the funniest thing that happens is that whenever this type of like pylon happens, right? And the pylon has happened because of the nature of the internet, you know? Yeah. So you have this generation of young people who have grown up online and like we naturally know like how to build followings. We naturally know like what works for our audiences. We have that intuition but like older generations don't. So then what happens after these pylons is that we do a column, which is basically just like, oh, so-and-so last week, I made this like comment about free speech and all right. these left-wingers are a calling- reasonable point, yeah. Yeah, all these left-wingers are saying that they want to like have sex with my wife and this is fascism. Um, <laughs> right, <laughs> do, 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 do you know what I mean? Like that's kind of, that's kind of actually a genre now, right? Um, it is, I mean, and also as a slight <laughs> side note, Ricky Gervais's stand-up, I, I understand, the last one was basically that. He was like, I said this on Twitter, and then someone else said that. And I'm like, that's stupid. And this is the thing, like, so much, so many of these columnists, like, even, like, people like Niall Ferguson and stuff, who were like, do you remember, I, you know, I, I studied history at York, and, like, I remember, you know, even even like people who were like left like left wing professors like you know in the most kind of glib sense they were like oh Niall Ferguson is like you know the only conservative that I'll read because he's like such a good and diligent historian and Eric now like everyone said that as well oh for real I didn't know that yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> um so now like he's just he just writes about like all these Twitter fights he gets into and the fact that like people you know criticize him online for holding a conference where like there were basically no women invited right um. Mm. This is another thing too. I think it's also just like this is the first time they've really had to experience like people directly telling them that their that their writing sucks or like their columns suck, right? Because yeah. back in the day, like you would just get letters or like sometimes you could get emails. And like one of my jobs once was as as a comment editor at the iPaper. Like I was doing that temporarily, and one of my jobs was to uh, sift through the mailbox. So it was just like an inbox where you'd have like 500 bits of email a day of people making comments about columnists and like right. stuff that they've written. And what I noticed was that very, like basically none of the columnists who I edited actually read those emails or letters. Like I was the one who would email, like read them. And if they were like nice enough and you would put them in the letters pages. Mm. Um, and if they, you know, and if they weren't, then you would like, you know, maybe ignore them or you'd like kind of cut them down and put them like right at the end and stuff like that. Right. Um, so basically none of these columnists have really had to confront like people engaging with their writing and this is the first time that they've had to do it and they had to do it with like a generation who like you know has seen like the tail end of like the collapse of centrism and like they are disenchanted and you know all these kind of things about you know both sides of them doesn't really work and I feel that they don't really know how to interact with that because they're just not used to that sort of format 
So when they're confronted to that extent, like they just freak out in a way that is kind of way over the top and also just like incredibly funny to watch. Yeah, no, no, totally. I mean, I think there are different varieties of, of these characters, though. So like um, Giles Corrin, for example, <laughs> much. Yeah. he seems much more comfortable online as, as a sort of online just expressing a sort of caricature of himself. And that seems to be like some a slightly different version of what's going on. So like, I, I, I agree with you with David Aronovich. I mean, I suppose one of the interesting questions is like, what is David Aronovich doing on Twitter? Because he, like Dan said, I mean, he, his stuff's behind the paywall. So it's like, he doesn't need it for money or anything. And I think right. to an extent, with Aronovich, like he, what he prides himself on is his ability to win arguments, right? That's his, that's his kind of thing. Right, so right, right. He really wants to take to Twitter. He's not promoting his stuff. I mean, he doesn't get any more money. Unlike people who are writing blogs. I mean, you're not, okay, you're not necessarily getting money for traffic, but you're getting the sort of, you know, like you said earlier, like you're building up an audience. You're trying to sort of expand your kind of personal and collective brand or whatever. Right, right, right. And with right. Aronovich, he's got that sort of social capital, as it were, but yeah. he's still taking to Twitter. And, you know, it, it does beg the question as, as what what is he doing with that? Why is he going to Twitter to be owned yeah. by teenagers? And I think it is that sort of irrepressible instinct that you need to... Um, you need to win arguments. But the thing that Twitter does, which I think is interesting, is I think it's true that these people will end up getting publicly humiliated, like, regularly. But, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, you know, if I had a lot of Twitter followers, then I would get a lot of trolls, and a lot of people would probably humiliate me regularly. But the other thing, (laughs) I think, the other thing that that, that sometimes is, is happening with these people is that, yeah they're losing these battles but they're also they're sort of decide to retreat and because it's the internet they can always find somebody who says something stupid so basically what they do is if they either they write the column that you mentioned earlier the genre of the intolerant regressive left um to which i was fell full fellow fell full full fell fell full (laughs) oh god that went wrong (laughs) anyway um to, to which yeah the so there's that, or there's a yeah. sort of Twitter version of that, which is basically you 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 find the stupidest argument against you, and you yeah. quote tweet it, and you say, look at these people online, you know, <laughs> saying the stupidest shit. Um, I'm the rational person here, and yeah. this is a slightly different genre of like journalists on Twitter. But I've, the one that annoys me the most is Rob Barley, who's a he's a BBC editor, and he does mm. this, and he takes to Twitter much more regularly than many. BBC people. I mean, apart from Andrew Neil, who maybe we can we can talk about a bit as well. But he does this thing of uh, takes to Twitter as the BBC's voice of impartiality, tries to have discussions about you know contentious questions over who they booked on you know the Marshall or whatever, and yeah. then he always ends it with like, okay, I'm going to quote quote tweet people from both sides, or I'm going to find the stupidest quote tweet. I'm going to say, look, you know, um, this is what happens when you go online. You just meet stupid people. I'm afraid <laughs> right, that, right. That, that's the sad reality of the internet. And I think I, the internet yeah. in a weird way that allows you to win arguments because it allows you to just pick the, you know, people say straw manning, but you don't have to straw man on the internet because you can literally find your straw, your man yeah. or woman who said the thing that you, that, that you can actually refute. And yeah. that, that happens a lot, you know, because you just yeah. got this sort of, yeah, myriad of voices going on. And yeah, and, and I think the fact that they have a certain amount of authority 
almost allows them to do that because they can sort of curate the conversation a bit more effectively unless they're being completely humiliated by a crowd you know if there's a big twitter pylon generally speaking right. somebody with more followers is going to win that that way i think and, and twitter seems yeah. to be structured like that i think yeah it's kind of like you're yeah. you're you're sort of playing to your own audience right so like i'm someone who has i have like twenty four thousand followers um which is like a which pretty big number it's not like the biggest but it's like a decent number so i know that even like the worst tweets that i do which tend to be just like dumb jokes that i've come to like two days after everyone else like that'll get at least like a couple of likes right um you know it's very rare that i'll ever do a tweet where i won't get any engagement maybe that's because i delete them if i know i don't know who who knows who know who can say uh but like i feel like you're right in saying that actually like people who look for certain things like they will find them because that's the nature of the internet like there is always people like who have these really dumb opinions or like have these really dumb views so whether you're looking for someone who like has like a, the, the most kind of racist opinion or someone who kind of plays into like this kind of stereotype that you have about like social justice warrior culture or something like they can find yeah. that and they can basically use that to amplify their arguments. So I've seen this with like American columnists, for example, like um, like Jonathan Haidt and like David Brooks and stuff like that, where like if they put out an article which is just really, really stupid and, you know, you get like this huge pylon, what they'll do is they won't really engage with like the, the core premise of like why these people are criticizing your article. So like, you know, um, there was a, I think David Brooks, but I'm not sure, like you have to double check on that. He did a column about um, like, you know, social, you know, social progressive left-wing fascist, whatever you want to call them. And he uses the term like cultural Marxist, right? Which as we know, is kind of like a dog whistle, something that is like used by like the alt-right and stuff like that. Um, so the pylon that he gets is kind of predictable, right? Like, why are you using these terms? Why are you kind of amplifying like right-wing people? Why are you feeding into this culture, which like equates like nationalistic ethno-fascists to like left-wing socialists, right? When they're completely different groups of people. Um, the, the quotes that he chooses to quote tweet are like the most kind of, you know, are the worst types of those takes, right? The ones who are just like, you know, insulting him personally and stuff like that. And he'll use that as a way of saying, but oh, this is what all my criticism amounts to. It's a personal attack because they don't like my ideas and like they, but they aren't intellectually capable of fighting against them when like quite evidently they do. And when you have an audience of people who are like very kind of like, you know, where they're very loyal to your writing or they're very loyal to your point of view, like, you know, even getting a small amount of likes, like 50 or 100 or something like that is enough for them to kind of say, oh, look, I'm not the only one who believes that. Right. Yeah. Other, other people are with me. And you see that in like other cases, too. So there's like an American pundit online called Dave Rubin, who's like that as well. Like, you know, he's like one of the dumbest guys uh he pretends that he's like a liberal but he you know he basically like he like did this big interview with casey hopkins where he was like oh yeah katie hopkins isn't that bad a person this is after she's made those comments about like how refugees are like locusts yeah. uh you know so like you know and the people that he chooses to quote tweet aren't ones who are like saying okay if you want to have a conversation about like what left wing is like what being part of the left is then why don't you you know why don't you invite like a leftist on your show what he'll do is like uh, he will quote tweet like the most reactionary person and be like, oh, I'm the rational one. I'm the one who just wants to like, you know, do the battle of ideas stuff. And I feel like you're right in kind of saying that Twitter has built itself up to be like that. It's not a good debating platform, but the problem was that it was never supposed to be a debating platform. I don't think it was ever supposed to be a debating platform. Um, but it's come at a time when like all these kind of right-wing reactionary dipshits are just like obsessed apparently with debating. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I know. I mean, I think Twitter oh. <laughs> has never even sort of presented itself as a sort of progressive 
project as far as I understand its sort of history and and founder you know it, it's not even whereas with some of um, these sort of tech companies and platforms they have this sort of you know vaguely progressive sort of um, you know atmosphere around them I right, mean right, Twitter right. I, don't, I don't even think that that's the case the one other thing I wanted to add to that point by the way is that for all the ineptitude of some of these personalities from you know the traditional media or the legacy media or whatever you want to call it they yeah. have enormous Twitter followings so the thing is with Twitter I mean I think you're 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 absolutely right about numbers of followers I mean I've I've noticed this I don't have a huge amount but I think I've got around 7,000 now yeah. and what I noticed was that when you go up from like the hundreds to the thousands the the rate at which your Twitter followers increase is huge you know yeah. like so once you get into a few thousand you go for, you you get a few thousand extra followers so much more quickly it's just a network effect but also yeah. these guys just you can transfer your name recognition from somewhere like the bbc or the times to jump through that first period which when you were starting out and when we all first joined twitter it took us a long time to get through the hundred i don't know how long it took you maybe it took you less long but to get through yeah. the first few hundred followers right yeah. and and that's when people start think, oh, you know, um, Hussein, he's got his blue tick, you know, he's got like, you know, a few thousand followers or whatever. He's obviously a person of note, so then I'll follow him. Yeah. They, get, they get through that in absolutely no time. They burn through that. And then yeah. you get into the period, like you say, where you get, you always get retweets or favorites and, and your opinions will just disseminate uh, through that network effect. And these yeah. guys will jump up to like where you are now, like, 20,000 will be like their starting point and mm -hmm. that gives you like you say like it within the Twitter network that does give you quite a lot of heft you know right. and most of the research on how Twitter works in terms of why the things go viral like the answer is absolutely straightforward if somebody's got loads of followers tweet something then it goes yeah. viral right like, <laughs> like it's like the influencer effect the amplifier effect yeah. Um, and you're and you're right. Also, like bearing in mind that like I have a ver I'm like I'm a verified member of Twitter. Like it also means that my tweets amplify as well. So you know, like when you wake up in the morning and you check your phone and like you have those tweets which are kind of like what you missed or like the tweets that were kind of most engaged yeah. with. Like I will often be one of them because of like my reach because of my follower account, but also the fact that I'm a verified member and therefore I get like certain priorities compared to people who are not verified. Um, so, you know, when you're a Times columnist with like a bigger following, of course, you'll get that. Right. And I don't know, because like a lot of it is a lot. What I find funny is that a lot of these a lot of these Times columnists and also just like these legacy media columnists who go online is that like they don't necessarily understand Internet culture, but they're obsessed with it. So they're like often yeah. more online than like most ordinary people. And like even with like Dave, even like with people like David Aronovich, I've seen him just like try to kind of argue like debate like random strangers like for hours like just people who like he could ignore and like get on with his day and you know nothing would change but he spent hours like trying to kind of intellectually best people um another person who's like on the left but does this a lot is also like glenn greenwald um yeah. and he and he like openly says this like in like i think it was like a new yorker profile about him where he's just like yeah like i'll just like you know, if I see someone who's like tweeting an opinion that like I don't like or like tweeting something that like I disagree with or I think is fundamentally dangerous, like I will just come at them like attack dogs. And yeah, this has definitely like affected my mental health, it's affected like my relationships with people. Um, you know, so I think there's, there's, there's a certain type of person and it's usually like a man who like just cannot stay away from like people who anger him. And Glenn Greenwald is like 
you're saying he's like the left David Aronovich. I, I, I don't want to go that far. I don't want to go that far. But like, you, know, you know that yeah. David Aronovich before your time was on the left in some sense. Yes. Yeah. 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 He, um, he and he and he still says that. Oh yeah, I'm like I'm an old school leftist. I read George Orwell stuff like that. He goes like. I'm not saying he's not on the left now. It's all who knows what truth is anyway. You know. <laughs> but um, Green, Greenwald's. Yeah. I mean, oh, he's he had, a, he had a hilarious online spat with Glenn Greenwald. Oh, did he? Yeah, they they had some argument over I think over WikiLeaks, and uh, Ronovich's line to Greenwald is you you do realize you're you're lining up with media lens, which is the most loathed part of the UK left or something. Right. <laughs> it was like it's not a playground, dude. It's not, it doesn't work like that. Like it's just it's a really. Everybody say lined up with media lens, <laughs> like the, the people who have like committed the worst crimes in politics. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like Khmer Rouge. Exactly. Like a man who lines up with Murdoch and Tony Blair. Like you do realise you're um, lining yourself up with two fairly belligerent and pedantic uh, left-wing Buddhists, don't you? <laughs> uh it's a funny world the internet sorry as saying like before before your time media lens was like a thing and david aronovich <laughs> yeah. because he was like the pro-war left was absolutely um, um we're unusually of... technical issues at the moment on this end sorry yeah, what, what do you mean what are we cutting out yeah yeah um a little bit so um i mean this brings us in a way to I mean, the whole issue of kind of sincerity of speech, right, online. Right. Like, there is a, there's a sense that I have that one of the things that journalists find really difficult is that the license that they once had to say things they didn't believe for money mm. has been now inappropriate by everybody. Um, and everyone, like, everyone can just go around saying things they don't believe just for fun. And I have a sense in a way that, like, journalists are a bit like, like, they're like sex workers who are like, why are other people giving away this product for free? It's like, you know what I mean? They, 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 their job was to make stuff, pretend they believe things in order to get a, a reaction out of people. Right. Um, and they're surrounded by people just doing it just for the shit, shit fun of it. <laughs> and it must be, it must be quite disconcerting because, again, like, there's always going to be someone better at it than you are. Yeah. Not in a science case. <laughs> um, I, I mean, like, could, could you like expand on that a little bit? Because, like uh just so i know just, just so i know what your question was well so so my question is like uh, how like how do journalists or uh, how have journalists dealt with trolling culture and how do you think oh, they, okay yeah are, how are they going to adapt adapt to it because um, yeah again that people in journalists we use the idea that the, the their audiences were essentially rubes who didn't know as much as them um, yeah could be fed stuff like they could be fed a product every day that came from a sort of mysterious news process that they never talked about or that they talked about in very mystifying ways. Yeah. Um, and now they're presented with this audience which often just takes what they do and sort of twists it and mucks, mucks about with it. Yeah. And like, how does journalist culture adapt to that? Because, like, even even in, relative, in the relatively short term, it's not sustainable for them to, to make out that they have, like, some privileged sort of access to the truth um when clearly it's you know there is there is much more um of a sense of a cacophony so you know what's your sense of how journalistic culture is adapting to that 
Um, oh, this is a difficult question because I think it depends on what outlet you work for and also like how seriously they take the internet. So like, and also like what level of trolling you're talking about. So um, I mean, all my, my career has always been like as an online reporter. Like, so my first jobs were working at, well, I worked in t- like local TV for a little bit, but after that it was just like, you know, working for the online desk for um, like Rockley or like working at Buzzfeed, like doing stuff with Vice. Um, now Mel Magazine is like an online magazine with a very limited kind of print run. Um, so I think when you're making stuff online and you hire people who kind of understand the internet, your engagement with like trolling is different because number one, you're much more aware of it. You're much more aware of like if people are taking the piss. I've had like cases where I've had leads that end up being people who are trying to troll. Um, but you can usually tell quite early on because you do your like diligent fact checking. I think the question that I think the interesting part for like you or like this show is what happens like old school papers who like how do they engage with like new forms of trolling or like misappropriating their reporting for like you know more malicious ends if I'm correct yeah yeah um in which case like I'm I don't really have a definitive answer mainly because I feel that traditional news organizations are still trying to figure out like what that is and they're also trying to do it on like much smaller budgets um so a lot of the time they just say oh like the young people they can kind of handle all the like you know people trying to troll the reporting um but the thing about the columnists is that often like they fall for shit like this so like do you i don't know one of like the biggest starkest examples of, and also just explains how stupid this whole thing is it's like rod little falling for robbie what's his name um oh do you know what i mean uh uh his he was like an edinburgh student and like he has rob it was like his name's robbie something and he basically said that like he was um he he was being threatened with expulsion from his university in edinburgh because he was anti-ISIS and he would express anti-ISIS opinions. And it <laughs> turned out, and, and, and like Rod Little wrote, wrote this entire column about it. It was just like, oh yeah, this student at Edinburgh University, um, you know, is just trying to kind of like stand up for liberal values. And like the, pro, the pro-left SJWs at Edinburgh Student Union um, are punishing him for it because like you can't insult the Muslims or something like that. And it turns out that actually like he had been on this, um, he had been on, like, he had been, like, harassing, like, one of the members of the student union, and, like, the whole story basically turned out to be bullshit, um, right. based on, like, you know, based on just indulging these, you know, indulging these um, uh, columnists and, like, their prejudices and stuff like that. So I think a part of me thinks to myself that, like, I wonder how much these columnists actually know what they're peddling is bullshit, but they do it anyway. Because they know that it like plays into their audience and they know that in reality it doesn't matter. And also bear in mind that lots of these columnists don't work in the newsroom either, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, they always tend to work at home or they always work when they're like abroad or something like that. So they don't actually like understand the fact that you are in this nexus, you're in this newsroom nexus where like and I think I should have really answered I should have really said this in the beginning, but like, you know, there was this old idea that in a newsroom, like everyone works in one place. So like you can understand how your relationship as a news reporter, for example, fits into like what features are doing or what, you know, your role as a features editor is fitting into what comment is doing. Like you're part of this like integral network mm-hmm. in which like you are trying to navigate the news and like that doesn't really exist anymore. Right. So like if you are a news reporter, yeah, you might be at the news desk. But if you're a columnist, you'll be working from home. If you're a features writer, you might like, you know, you might come in a couple of days a week. If you're an editor, you might only come in a couple of days a week. Um, and I think that's kind of fundamentally changed how news works as well. So in terms of like columnists, it's like, OK, well, if you barely see them and you're only really interacting with them on email, but you also know that like these are the ones who are as an editor, like, you know, that oh, these are the people who are like paying my wages. They're the ones they're the reason why people are buying papers and therefore like 
if I kind of speak out against them, then like that fucks up the whole ecosystem. Yeah. Um, so in some ways, I feel like there's not actually any incentive for reporters or like, they're not even reporters, but there's no real incentive for like columnists or even to an extent like editors to kind of work out like what to do about like blatant misinformation. I think like a big example of that um, is a spectator. Like the spectator is a really interesting one because like yeah. I remember like a decade ago, like the spectator was considered to be this like, you know, intellectual conservative magazine and like. You know, I remember like seeing like Fraser Nelson, funnily enough, was like one of the first people that I had gone to like see as a lecture, you know, where he was saying, but oh, and he had just got the editorship of the of the spectator. And he was like, I want to make this a destination for like smart, considered literary journalism, um, you know, so that the spectator can be like this kind of shining beacon in like British As indeed it became right <laughs> okay um and now it publishes like you know nazi apology like apologists so you know maybe maybe he got what he wanted um but do you, I do think, you know what i mean you know, do you know what i mean does that make sense yeah it's interesting isn't it like to what extent are the patterns we're seeing to do with the dege- sort of degeneration of conservatism or mm. or the dege- or the influences of these kind of technologies i mean i think a lot of the sort of a lot of what passes for contemporary conservatism conservatism has always been driven by you know re- responding to and battling with the left but the way that that's played out in the lo- online space through some of these sort of personalities i mean like neil ferguson and now jordan peterson who you know he if you think of the spectator and the sort of role it played in british conservatism as a sort of trailblazer for um you know, far-right, anti-immigrant um, sentiment, but also British neoconservatism. Mm. It, that, and, and Neil, Neil Ferguson was very much sort of part of that movement, you know, and this is before really, I think, a lot of the online stuff had started to take hold. The, the, the two elements probably, you know, coincided to some extent in terms of, like, what is conservatism? And I think you're right. Like, it's an interesting one, a spectator, and Dan and I have talked about it a little bit, like, you know, should we do one show on it because it's a very you know it's a, it's a strange sort of institution like you say like it's it's a very sort of august kind of traditional respected organ of conservative opinion or was at one stage and now it's just you know it's complete trash and it's yeah. one of the things we talk about quite a lot is the, you know the times like you don't want to sort of venerate this institution it's always been um you know a mouthpiece of british conservatism right but it, it now has just sort of a i mean its relationships to the left just seems completely, you know, unbalanced and like, uh, it, but in terms of, you know, the sort of the tone of its commentary and also the the values of its reporting is just all, it's all basically out of whack with, um, you know, the, the professed values of, of British journalism. I mean, that that much is very clear, but it's a, it's kind of an interesting question as to what, you know, what role online is online activity is kind of played in that and I think to some extent you know it's it has been I mean I suppose Jordan Peterson is an interesting character in this regard I mean moving off Twitter and onto YouTube as to you know the relationship between these kind of movements these right-wing movements and (laughs) the their means of communication and the ways in which they're responding to the left because what have these people been incensed by I mean it has been particularly with the thing that pisses them off the most is yeah this idea of the social justice warrior um these kind of woke characters who are very much 
online and that's where they're disseminating ideas the politics of outrage being yeah. triggered and all of that and and obviously the alt-right is being a sort of you know foot soldiers of that kind of political sure. movement they're you know they're responding and moving into that space i mean i suppose the funny thing is that you you do get these older characters doing it don't you i mean yeah. i suppose okay like some of the characters we've been talking about have been in some ways quite inept but mm. Someone like Jordan Peterson, I mean, you know, I I don't know how interesting a figure he is. And he's definitely not intended, in some sense, he seems out of step with the online world. But on the other hand, he's very much a product of it, isn't he? And I don't know, I mean, not Twitter so much, but um, definitely like, yeah, YouTube and obviously like the whole all right movement i think it's 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 really it's really bizarre because i think there's been so many think pieces about jordan peterson that i've kind of grown tired about it but like for some reason he's kind of and he always pops up though i did a tweet a couple of days ago like how um so i'm on a fellowship in like new york at the moment um so i was like writing and i was watching a youtube video and i fell asleep and like i woke up a few hours later and on my desk and there's like this video of jordan peterson playing even though the video i remembered watching last was like something (laughs) Like the video I was watching was something like it was something to do with like um it was to do with cars because I was looking to like, I'm looking to buy a car right so um and it was just, like, a fucking nightmare and it was just like you know how many videos did I have to go through to get to this video of Jordan Peterson talking about the Joker from Batman and it's just like this yeah. is absolutely bizarre but like it kind of goes to show but like he is this all encompassing figure and like for some people that's because you know he is you know, the, one of the, like, intellectual figureheads of, like, you know, conservative right-wing movements. For other people, it's because, like, he is, like, representing a certain form of, like, reactionary masculinity, and I think there's some truth to that. I think in the context of the conversation we're talking about, what's interesting is that a lot of time papers have had to, like, adapt to all this kind of stuff that's happening online, but it's out of their control. So, like, you see, for example, that, like, papers like the times or like the telegraph and stuff they really like fawn over like wanting to do like exclusive interviews of jordan peterson or exclusive interviews of steve bannon and stuff like that despite the fact you know exactly what they're going to say they haven't changed their like they haven't changed anything about like their views they're not really particularly that interesting as people either um but they know that like there's this huge constituency and this huge audience that will swallow up anything that you write about um you know these types of characters right um is there also since they're sort of arbitrage between the, the online audiences they have and maybe an older less online audience who for whom jordan peterson is uh is news in a way yeah so, that's probably true as well uh, like they aren't they trying to explain it you know like in the same way as the telegraph does it sort of i'm going to explain teenage slang to our readers every so often. right 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 i feel like it's like you like, know how like yeah. for example bad is actually that means good now oh really yeah, oh, really? yeah. Wow. I can't. I can't wait until like they under they like to figure out like what hype beasts are and stuff like that. It'll be it'll be a fun day. Uh, <laughs> you should become the Telegraph slang correspondent. <laughs> oh, I wish. You know, I wish. I wish. I wish I could. I wish I was like as edgy, but I don't you're, see you're, somehow. Well, you know, to the I think in the Spectator or the Telegraph, you would probably still be quite edgy. I feel like I feel I feel like but there is a. Interesting, uni- it's interesting that, that a figure like Peterson has become so prominent without the patronage of a newspaper like yeah or a broadcaster i mean yeah it's true yeah there is something i mean again like we look at it and it's like this apparent sort of um frictionless rise to prominence um there may well have been much more going on. i don't but, i don't think i don't think that's like a hundred i mean 
it's only in the sense that he because he got into prominence because of all the stuff that was happening on the University of Toronto campus, right? In regards to right, um, he, he wouldn't use gender neutral pr- pronouns. Right. So, so that so, so there was like this big kind of cultural thing that was already happening in terms of like you know uh, like conservative reactionaries being angry that like trans people can like you know now can speak and they can like be reactionary. They can like be reactionary and they can fight for like things that they believe in. So like Jordan Peterson, I think, kind of showed up at the right time. Sure. Um, and he got discovered, but he was like making he was making content ages before um, ages before like the University of Toronto thing. And people like he he had been like the same character before then, and like he was just this really obscure professor for a long time. Yeah. So it was so it took this kind of big cultural moment for him to like be projected into the scene. So even then, it wasn't like I don't feel like it's anything inherent inside him. He was just like a guy who was very yeah, the right time. You're right. Kind of, it was. Yeah inherent as it were in the algorithm either right um yeah. he was he was given that that boost by mainstream coverage um yeah. rather than being sort of endogenous to the youtube platform yeah. so like in a lot so in a lot of cases these cultural moments kind of give rise to particular figures who can just like capitalize on it really well yeah. um yeah. you know and, I, and there is definitely a universe where like Jordan Peterson wouldn't be that important. Like, you know, if you kind of... I wish we lived in that universe. I wish we did as well. Um, but, you know, if you kind of listen to, like, his kind of, like, general lectures on stuff, um, you know, they're pretty boring. Like, even his fans kind of say... I, I, go, I go into, like, the Jordan Peterson subreddit sometimes, and even his fans are kind of like, he's just saying the same stuff. Like, nothing has really changed about what he says, and, like, he's doing the same lecture. He has, like, the same types of views. Like, there's nothing. So what they really like about him is when he, like, supposedly, like, quote-unquote, takes down people, right? Sure. So the sure. ones that... So, like, the things that do really well on the subreddit are, like, you know, the Kathy Newman interview or, yeah. um, you know, Jordan Peterson takes down, like, leftists or something like that. There's, like, there's a really interesting... There's a really interesting video where, like, someone actually, like, challenges him pretty smartly about one of his opinions and he recognizes oh this is a pretty smart question and then like the youtube video that comes out of it by like one of his fans is like jordan peterson destroys college campus leftist um you know and that gets like thousands tens of thousands of views even though what he's saying number one doesn't really own the student and number two isn't really that interesting um so i'm so i'm starting to see that like even they recognize that he isn't really offering much but it's the fact that like he represents an oppositional character that really entices both his fan base and also like media outlets like the times who have their own kind of opposite, you know, cause I, I'm, you know, I, I'm sure you haven't noticed. I'm sure you, I'm sure you've noticed that, um, you know, the, the times kind of subject of choice at the moment tends to be trans issues. Yeah. Right. So like he kind of really fits well into that nexus. Um, right. and they can use him to kind of push something that they inherently believe regardless of whether Peterson existed or not. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, he he's yeah, he's sort of an interesting character, but not an interesting character, isn't he? I yeah. mean, it, like you say, it is interesting that he he was there and and right, the algorithms weren't, you know, bringing him to prominence. So, I mean, I suppose that that sort of illustrates, I mean, a couple of things. Yeah, what like the, you need you, you it's not just you know you can't be technologically determinist about these things. I mean, it's like we're saying from the beginning, you can't just get online and suddenly your voice amplifies but what it does seem to do is blow people up very quickly like you know Jordan Peterson became a a thing and I was just like I remember when everyone was talking about him on Twitter and everything I was like oh Christ am I actually gonna have to you know listen to this person come up with an opinion on why I'm wrong Um, and it turned out that I did because you know like he didn't really go away and still hasn't 
quite gone away and see it seems to i think i might be edging towards like an original thought or a thought i haven't occurred to me before which is that like do we think that like the david aronovich's of tomorrow are going to come out of something like youtube rather than out of newspaper i actually want to make a point about this because i think yes but also i think it's worth remembering that the David Aronovich of today and the people who the Sun and, you know, the Murdoch papers pick up anyway, do mm. tend to emerge from pre-existing political movements. So that's partly why, you know, they picking them up from the left um, or for, in the case of like some of Aronovich's sort of, you know, fellow travellers like Oliver Cam and... Uh, Nick Cohen okay Nick Cohen was a journalist in the first place but like some of these personalities from around that time and when we talked about Sonny Hundle at the beginning but some people on the right you know they they were picking up these people from pre-existing you know political movements and and struggles and then giving them a new platform right so I think in a way Aronovich anyway had built a personality and a set of skills uh for himself which was then uh was then useful to Murdoch I think and to the, the, the hmm. sort of brand of at the time so where are these people going to come from I mean, who's not going to come from online you know? there's right. nobody there's there is nowhere else to come from in a sense I mean it's possible that you know you could I suppose develop a reputation in in any sort of sphere of public life but for the most part if you're going to want somebody who is going to attract attention in an online economy then they're going to have to aren't they yes they are but the the point Hussein made earlier is that the economist the, the function of the economist in some senses was to drive sales of the newspaper yeah um, it was to give a personality to the newspaper it was to give it like a hook so people would go out and they would they would they would get the newspaper because it was differentiated um a particular economist or a collection of columns or whatever um what function will columns fulfill um if they are emerging as like online personalities um and probably as audio visual personalities rather than text-based personalities first and foremost yeah. right they'll be they'll be visible um embodied um figures and they they will as as again as i was saying like they'll say the same thing over and over in a way that satisfies a constituency or engages a constituency um and they become a kind of secure, stable point in the world to focus on. It's like, where will, I mean, I suppose the other, the other question is like, what, like, so what role will they, who will they do that for, if anyone? Will they mm. just do it for, the, for themselves and for the advertising revenues that can be generated off that sort of spectacle of the self? Um, mm. and, uh, and do we need a Jordan Peterson of the left? Ah, there's like two questions, right? So like the first one, the first one I'll say is that, um, which is more of a thought than anything else, is that it's a very dangerous model to go on in the sense that the strategy would be if you were employing someone or if you were getting someone to write for you who had built an audience online themselves, yeah. then you're kind of dealing with these very tumultuous and very sensitive characters. It's kind of in the same way that like brands use like influences, you know, influences like build up their own audiences yeah. And the idea is that like they can make kind of a lot of quick money because the audience is already there and all they're doing is like be, be making a product. Yeah. But ultimately it puts the influencer in the driving seat. And that also means that the influencer can really kind of screw you over. So it's the same with the newspaper as well, right? 
it's right. like okay you get this person to write for you you get you pay them for like a weekly column or something like that they attract like a ton of traffic for like a very short amount of time before someone else comes on the scene because that's another thing too like the shelf life of these guys is really really low so what ends up happening is like a lot of them either kind of fade away into obscurity or they become more and more extreme in order to kind of maintain their position um at which point like these news brands who want to be like okay you know especially places like the times that want to stay as like paper of record um you know how how much like how far are they willing to go and how much do they really need this advertising model that like you know at what point will they kind of say that you know we can't actually tolerate this level of extremity and that's a really big open question because like you know we've looked at places like lbc for example which have you know still employ people that have expressed really extreme views that would get you fired in any like other location right um you know uh the telegraph has published columnists who have pushed like george soros conspiracies right um um, you know and they still employ them and they still pay them more than any other reporter i can assure you um so the big question is like you know actually these newspapers is is the same as like you know oh the newspapers like have you know they're so committed to the truth and they're so committed to like the virtues of news that they won't let their brands kind of sink as a result of it it's like no that's completely wrong and they absolutely will if they have to um so that's like a really dangerous strategy and i sort of wonder how sustainable that is well i wonder if in a way you know that's that's the line that you know the that a lot of these organizations have gone down and when when you were talking about the celebrity sort of bringing in people with an audience and it reminded me you mentioned glenn greenwald earlier but the the guardian tried this with glenn greenwald you know and they had the the other i suppose the other problem you have is yeah that you, the the, per, the personality you bring in um are by their nature sort of um sort of uh yeah a bit belligerent or independent or know that they have some sway because they've been brought in to deliver something and that like you say it, it is either going to create difficulties for you as an organization or in the case of the, i mean glenn green was a bit different because he you know he's quite careful and he's you know relatively it's quite professional but i think like people on the right just won't share those kinds of values you know and what what is the value that they bring i mean glenn greenwald it's a sort of you know like relentless kind of left fact checking in the old sort of blogging style but the right yeah it's a kind of um one-upmanship around controversial opinions isn't it and and sort of left baiting and yeah as you said earlier like we've seen where that takes you with the spectator really with these sort of right-wing provocateurs who um you know seem to be energized by saying something more and more outrageous and that just seems to be i mean i suppose part of that is to do with clickbait and again i mean i i, I still think part of it to, is to do with the trajectory of yeah conservatives as well i mean the, the spectator is a bit different because it is a political opinion outfit so it's almost is all columnists you know it's not it doesn't have that sort of news brand so I think the times the times is a bit different like you say they're they're sort of being pulled in two slightly different directions there because they have to maintain a certain or that you'd think they'd have to maintain a certain prestige um you know the spectator it's a bit more about brand management in the, the sort of more conventional sense isn't it you know at what at what point people will just be like you just can't take this seriously but people yeah. don't read the spectator for news. They do read it for opinion. Yeah. And they and it's kind of like, you know, they, they also they read it because it's also like an expression of like their political identity. And that's another thing. That's another thing, too. It's like 
you know, what are publications? Like, what are they supposed to do? And I know that's a, that can sound very reductive, but like, if you work in news, that is a really important question to ask because I feel like a lot of people who buy The Spectator and like read The Spectator, like it's really an expression of a political identity rather than like someone who's genuinely looking for like, you know, information or like looking for like great storytelling or something like that. The New Statesman to a certain degree, I guess, is the same, although I wouldn't put them in the same category. Um, but what I'm trying to say is that like, uh, you know, the, the role of media outlets, I think, is changing considerably, um, mm. you know, in the sense that, like, even if they're not designed to be politically aligned or like part of an extension of political expression, they will naturally become so anyway. Right. I don't know about whether you guys heard this, but I always when I went to journalism school, like there was always this thing about, oh, if you're like left wing, then you'll buy The Guardian. And if you're right wing, you'll read The Telegraph. And if you're sort of a bit of both and you'll read The Times and yeah. you know, you've got to like read all these different perspectives. And like, I, I don't ever think that was true, but I definitely don't think that even like if there was an ounce of truth in that, like, I don't really think that really is the case anymore. Um, and, you know, you, you, and you and you know, it's because like you run a podcast and like, obviously I run, tra- you know, we run Trash Feature and trash feature isn't like a neutral media outlet like we are very clear about our political positions at least in broad terms even though like we are a show that interviews people with different opinions and different views and like they differ in like various theoretical or like practical aspects um and the people who listen to us aren't people who are looking for neutral opinions right they have set their flags very clearly and what they want is kind of you know more direction or more kind of insight into that particular space um you know and that's fine i feel like you know media if media heads that way there's nothing we can do about it but then the premise is like for people for institutions like the times it's you know it requires a lot of soul searching it means you know editors having to ask themselves like what really are we like can we really feasibly pretend to be this paper of record that treats both sides the same and equally and only seeks the truth um because i i just don't feel that that's really tenable or can exist and like it's just disingenuous and it just makes our whole media conversation like disingenuous as well. I agree. I, if it if it if it ever was um, feasible, which I don't think it was, uh, the point is it doesn't look feasible now. There was a point at which that that was a believable story to tell, you know, for journalists to themselves and to the public. But I think at this stage, it's looking, um, yeah, rather hollow. Mm. It is like yeah. The pose of neutrality is, is, is very difficult to sustain uh, in those legacy media. I think, you know, neutrality is now a, a space that's being forced over and particularly in Google and Facebook. Um, that's that's where some notion of a of a of a, of a neutral space can be um, approximated or or claimed. Again, it will be a lie, but but it, it can be it's a more plausible lie there than it can ever be in a single outlet now. A new lie, which is what you mean, like in the infrastructure, almost. Yeah, the idea that the somehow the the the, the sort of the neutral the the algorithms, you know, don't care about your feelings, kind of thing, um, and they'll just deliver um, some something kind of balanced. I think that's where, I mean, that's where all the the, the politics around the platforms is about trying to establish them as as being trustworthy spaces right yeah the way that in the in the late 19th century you could read the times and you could you could have a sense that, that i've got the information now that i need and it's it's reliable and it's um 
it's going to be useful to me. Um, and it's the sort of information that any reasonable person would want to have, brackets, actually, I'm a property male living in the imperial metropolis. Yeah. Um, and and that's what but that's what balance and and you know reason look like to me um and that means that maybe the Belgians are being a bit um a bit too energetic in the congo um but uh what we're doing in india is absolutely fine sort of thing so yeah i think i think that's the role that it used to play i think the bbc is suffering in a similar way frankly i think the bbc is visible from the outside in a way that it never has been before um and mm. that's that's another you know that's another conversation about the bbc on twitter um you know, i mean my overwhelming question with twitter with twitter, bbc on twitter is like why does the bbc have its own platform for debate um um and why why are we using the twitter platform as you say it wasn't designed as a debating platform it was designed as a a kind of online post board wasn't it it was a place where people just put things up um they were interesting it's become this it's been appropriated by political culture in britain and the united states because there's nothing else there's no other obvious venue in which to do this so yeah. we kind of um improvised a debating space on it um with all the sort of shortcomings that you touched on earlier about the advantages of incumbency and so on um and that brings us to the questions like what why have we been so slow um to develop a um a public platform on which public debate might take place uh, in a more fruitful manner um, because a lot of the pathologies on Twitter has come from it's not being designed for free and, free and a kind of open exchange of views but designed as yeah. I say as a kind of online po- post board it, I think it, it extends into a bigger question of like the internet itself right um, I was having a conversation with my friend uh, Ryan Broderick, who works at BuzzFeed as well, and he's like he's very smart. And he was also a guy who like just grew up online, and you know he grew up on like you know on post boards and stuff. So like the old forums and everything, where you'd have forums dedicated to like particular fandoms or like particular communities, and like the way that those forums were navigated and moderated. Because like you know that's also one thing too. Like the whole free speech debate is kind of a bit of a farce because even in like the good old days of like the internet, like there were always postboard moderators and there were always like rules and, you know, people who, you know, to, to forge a community, you needed that regulation. There was never such thing as like absolute free speech sure, sure. on any of these platforms. Yeah. I think the difference now is that like Twitter is this is one centralized platform and there isn't really anything else. Whereas like back in the old, back in the days of like early internet times, if you wanted to, if you were like really interested in cars, you would go to like a car forum or if you yeah. were really interested yeah. in, um, you know, books, you would go to a book forum or something like that. Um, because everything is now so centralized, like there will always exist like forms of inequality. Well, number one, the, the key thing is that it's really difficult to build communities on Twitter mm-hmm. um, because the platform is built so that like everything you do is in public. So, you know, and with the, with the old forums, at least the ones that I used to visit, like, you know, the people who came there, we had like similar experiences and similar views when it came to like particular things we were interested in. Like, so I'm, for like people who like don't know, like I'm I'm a big kind of like Japanese anime fan. Um, I tweet about it a lot, like too much sometimes. Uh, but the forums that I used to go on, you know, we were all kind of people who were really interested in like Japanese culture, and we were really can interested I just in. Just asked, like, uh, uh, yeah. can I ask the same? Um, are there yeah. are there um, forums for anime? Have there ever been forums for? Anime? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, I'm there, there have been two. There have been too many forums. That's, that's what I'm going to say. There have been too many. Oh, yeah. No, I'm familiar. It is uh, quite popular with an online community or two. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, you know, and schools. But I, I, just, just to kind of close up that point, it's like, yeah, like Twitter is this one big central forum where everyone is kind of like left on their own, and like you've got to like prove yourself, and like there is no kind of desire for community, and because there's no real desire for community, it's a very kind of lukewarm one. Um, it means that like ultimately there is no there is no kind of impetus for like oh I want to like have this debate because it will make this community that I'm part of better or it will make this community that I'm part of more enriching and when I go and read this when I go and read stuff every day I'll take something back from it now it's just like Twitter just seems to be this place where like you're proving yourself or you yeah. have to like take down people to yeah. like get clout and like it's just this deeply unpleasant place to be but it also feels as if it like you know, imagine if you said to someone that I'm leaving Twitter and I'm just going to go back to, like, you know, um, E-bombs world or something. Like, they would just laugh at you. would be like, you know, well, who else, who else is going to be there? Do you know what I mean? Like, so a lot of us, like, don't actually have a choice. If we want to, like, engage with other people, if we want to meet other people and talk about different experiences and, like, see different things, we have to be on these platforms. Yeah. You know, have, like, immense amounts of power. Yeah, that, that's it. I mean, you know, you, you just... It is a feature of the monopolization these platforms have. It's, it's so easy to forget that, you know, how many different sort of decentralized spaces there were even 10 years ago compared to what we have now. Yeah. I mean, and it, it's really striking. It's true we as well. We don't the, think through enough. Like, the New Left Project, like, that was at the tail end of that period, but it, there, was a, there was a community of people there um, and people met. Like in the comments, didn't they? I mean, that was a, yeah that to was an extent. Thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it, that was on Twitter as well. Right. But we had like a message board and like uh, well, all these comments underneath, and it, it, I, I think you know to an extent, other publications can still serve as hubs that people start to gather around on Twitter to create sub communities. But ultimately, your capacity for communication is still linked to that platform, and yeah. you know to a certain yeah. extent to Facebook as well, it's, um, yeah, and it's not a good thing. I mean, I think I, th I think almost everybody finds Twitter depressing, and pro probably even the journalists we've been talking about. Oh, yeah, like, I think every every journalist conference I've been to, and, like, I hate to say that I actually do have, I do have been to, like, uh, too many. Like, they all kind of say this, but, like, Twitter is a really depressing place, and, like, I spent hours and hours on it, and I don't really get anywhere. I think I don't. I don't actually share that view. I do actually enjoy Twitter to a huge extent because, like, ultimately, it is a place where I will I will find interesting stuff and I'll read interesting things. And like, part of my job is finding that stuff. And like, it's valuable to have like a big collection of all that thing. All that right. thing. Right. I think it's more about like how we use it, for example. So I've tried to be very conscious about um, when I use it and how I use it. I've been thinking a lot about, okay, well, now that you're a verified person with, like, over 20,000 followers, like, what things should I be doing and what things, like, should I just stay away from even if it enrages me? Um, so in some ways, it's, like, it's reassessed. It's, it's allowing me to reassess how I use the online world in both professional and personal circumstances. But to go back to, like, something we were talking about earlier, like, about, you know, Times columnists who, like, find themselves, like, arguing for hours online, I feel like they haven't really had that conversation because they haven't been the type of generation who have grown up online. So for them, it's like, oh, this is a place that should be like any other place. It should right. be like civil and there should be the, the rules of offline should be the same as rules of online. Whereas I feel like if you have grown up at least in an online environment or you spent a lot of time on there, there's always been this thing about, you know, there's always been this idea that the way that we behave online is very different to how we behave offline. It's just that now we're interrogating that behavior a lot more. Yeah. That's a good note to end on. We've been talking for... <laughs> We took it for an hour and a half, and we still um, haven't got to the 
the answer to my key question is, do we need a Jordan Peterson for left? <laughs> Which is going to be a conversation for another day. Um, yeah, I feel like I feel like you need a better person to talk about that as well. Well, like, we need. I, don't, I, I genuinely don't know. We certainly here. Um, we need a night's sleep. Let's put, let's put the question to the listeners now and feedback on Twitter, please. Our favourite website. <laughs> yeah, why don't the we? Any way of communicating with what, us? Why don't you give uh, your frank thoughts to us on Twitter? Um, we look forward to hearing. And that. we will block you immediately. Yeah, and, <laughs> and report you to the moderators. Um, <laughs> Good, good, good. Thank you so much for joining us, Hussain. Um, you have to. Ap- I have to apologise for my rambling interrogative style. Um, no, no, it's that was, so was... And, like it went so much smoother than like every episode of Trash Future I've ever recorded. So I'm very happy about that. <laughs> I'm also happy. Tell the listeners um, where they can find you on Twitter and what you're what you're working on at the moment. You said you mentioned you're in New York at the moment. Um, yes, so you, you can find me on Twitter at hkesvani, um, and I am in New York at the moment. I'm on the Logan uh, Nonfiction Fellowship, and I have I'm working on my first book. It's called Follow Me, Brother: uh, The Online World of British Muslims. Um, so I'm sure that there will be like a crossover audience uh, between mine and Tom's that will enjoy that. Um, and it's all about how religious ide- like how social media has adapted and. Um, enhanced religious identity in ways that are both positive and very destructive. Oh, fascinating. Um, well, <laughs> perhaps we'll have you on again in your in your guise as author rather than <laughs> extremely online <laughs> blue tick. Um, <laughs> yeah. but thank you very much for spending some time with us and um, uh, all the best in your future endeavours. Thank you.